some people who have really bad insomnia, they, they try to take hemp CBD before they go to bed. It doesn't work as a sleep aid directly. Sometimes it can actually make people more wakeful. It can actually wake up some of the parts of the brain um, and, and that are involved with keeping us awake and alert. Hi friends, in this week's episode, we're going to be diving into the world of CBD and medicinal cannabis. I'm chatting to Dr. Danny Gordon, who is a London-based double board certified doctor and world-leading expert in CBD, cannabis medicine, and integrative medicine. She has an incredible book called The CBD Bible, which will give you everything you need to know about CBD um, that she published in 2020. And she has a second book coming out later this year called The Resilience Blueprint. She, in addition to being dual certified by the UK and American um, boards in integrative medicine, she's also studied mind-body medicine at Harvard, yoga, meditation, and herbal medicine extensively throughout India and Southeast Asia. She was also the founder of an EEG neurofeedback wellness center in Bali that was specializing in burnout and stress resilience. And she's been using mindfulness and mind-body techniques with patients for over a decade You're going to hear about some of these practices in this week's episode, and you'll also be hearing about when is the right time to use more stimulating forms of breath work, like Wim Hof breathing, for example. When should you be using cold water therapy and sauna? And when aren't these things appropriate? When are they actually a bit too much stress for the system, depending on where that person is? Uh, in terms of their their level of fatigue or burnout. And Dr. Danny explains this very fluently for us today. Um, I think it will give you some really good insights on how you can begin to optimize your own practices. So without further delay, let me introduce you now to the lovely and highly knowledgeable Dr. Danny Gordon. So Dr. Danny, it's so good to have you here. I'm really, really excited to talk about integrative medicine, resiliency. I think, you know, there couldn't be a better time, really, when we look at the way the world is now coming, you know, the back of sort of two years of the pandemic, post-pandemic, and now everything all over the news is all about the economy. And I think just globally, we've been under this this volume of stress universally for such a long time. So I'm really thrilled to have you on the show. Um, So very warm welcome. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, it's going to have tons and tons of questions for you. So I guess uh, I think probably a really good place to start is resilience is a term, you know, I talk about a lot, lots of people are using, um, but isn't that well understood? So why don't we start there by describing what it what does it mean to be a resilient human? Yeah, it's a great question. So researchers, of course, are still arguing about the definition of what is resilience. It's kind of a nebulous term. But what I mean when I talk about resilience is really about health and well-being resilience. And for me, there's some core factors that, that play into that. So the first thing is how well we can bounce back after we've had a setback or a challenge or some kind of adversity because everyone faces these things. Um, and I always I like that phrase of bouncing forward. So not only, I mean, my patients who are really sick, we're trying to get them to bounce back, but my patients who are really well already, we want to make them bounce forward so they can use these challenges that they face um, as a, a building block for even more resilience. Because the thing about the, how the brain works is you actually need to have setbacks and challenges to build resilience. So this is great news for everyone who's ever been under stress. We actually need some stress to get more resilient. Um, the other thing for me that resilience is about is uh, really about four different 
aspects of mental well-being. So our energy levels, how much energy do we have, how energetic do we feel, how energized are our cells, our mitochondria, and then we have stress and anxiety levels. So how ramped up our nervous system is, are we able to return to that calm baseline easily? And then we have mood, which of course is our ability to interact with the world and putting our brain into that approach behavior and not getting stuck in the the the, the lows and in really like the the really down loops that, that the brain can get stuck in. And then the last um, sector of resilience for me as a doctor is um, mental function, cognitive function, including how clear-headed we feel, um, you know, getting rid of brain fog, how well we can think and how we can execute on our life's vision. So for me, that is really what resilience is about. Yeah, I agree. I love that. Um, it's pretty broad, isn't it? I mean, do you, as part of that, do you also factor in when you're looking at, you mentioned there like the resiliency of the mitochondria and your energy, do you also look at heart rate variability? Because I find that's a really good indicator of looking at our adaptive reserve, right? When it's going down, you know that you just don't have that much available at this point in time. You need to kind of double down on that recovery. Do you, do you also integrate that? Yes. So I think we're, we're talking about this a little bit offline was, um, you know, I used to have a, a neurofeedback brain wellness center in Bali in Indonesia um, before we moved back to London. And we used a lot of HRV alongside brain biofeedback. So HRV is a really nice tool. Um, it doesn't work well for everyone. I have to say over the years, I have found that some people respond really well to HRV training. Some people don't. So it's it's finding what works for the person. But um, I do like HRV training. I do like that a lot of the smartwatches and things are starting to integrate that. So you don't have to use kind of the more old school equipment. Um, and it, it is a nice, it's a nice home practice that's not very expensive that people can kind of get into. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting. And when you were talking there about challenges, this is this is something, you know, when I'm, when I'm coaching clients, we always try to focus on is what, what are the learning experiences from this? And how can we translate that into potential for future growth? Because it's a little bit, isn't it, like going to the gym and breaking yeah. down the muscle. You've got to do that to actually make yourself stronger. But there's a fine balance, I guess, between someone overreaching so far that they can't bounce back, as you say. Um, what have you found is that kind of, tension ratio between for someone who's looking really to perform at their highest level between kind of pushing themselves enough uh i don't know what the research is here because when we look at something like flow states for example to get into flow yeah. we think that that challenge skill ratio is about 10 percent outside right but what about yeah. the kind of resiliency how much do we need to sort of stress ourselves to get those adaptations without actually burning ourselves out well, it, it really comes down to something that you just touched on was how much our brain feel, is feeling the stress. So we can um, turn uh, bad stress, which is becomes toxic and creates free radical damage in our cells and creates toxic uh, patterns in the mind into good stress, depending on um, a number of factors, including what our baseline level of resilience is. And that fluctuates all the time. So for example, if you're going through a really stressful time in your life um, or a really stressful month, your resilience is probably going to be a bit lower. It ebbs and flows all the time. So those are the times where checking in with yourself, doing a simple practice like mindfulness, for example, journaling, whatever it is for you, and um, lowering the stress burden is important to make sure that we don't push over into that toxic stress world. Um, and it, this this is kind of related back to the Yerkes-Dodson law, which is this these two scientists that a hundred years ago, they, um, they found that in order for people to experience growth, 
Um, and they started off in animal models, actually, in order for, for animals to, to perform at their best. Um, they had to have some level of stress, but too much stress, as you said, tips people over into dysfunction. So everyone has their own um, set point for how much stress they can handle before it becomes toxic stress. And actually, through a process of increasing our resilience over time, we can actually shift that set point to a certain extent. But there'll be some people who always struggle with um, one particular domain or another. So some people really, um, for probably genetic reasons, epigenetic reasons, their mitochondria are just not as resilient, meaning they are more prone to getting sick, getting colds, flus, and probably um, to fatigue. Then there's other people who are more prone to, to getting low mood. Their, their mood is not as resilient, um, but they might be have loads of energy. Um, so it's really kind of knowing what I call your resilience makeup. Um, I actually just wrote a book about this that's coming out in, in April, because I think this is part of the key is if you don't know your resilience type, your resilience makeup, then it's really hard to know where that 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 balance point is for you because we're all so different. So what someone else is doing might be completely different than what you need Mm. yeah you notice that with work don't you and I think as well like that level of kind of intrinsic motivation around what you're doing plays a huge part right in terms of your energy levels because if you're doing something you enjoy you naturally feel more energetic yeah Um, but it's very interesting what you say there about the epigenetic because we look at sometimes you know if you look at something like the comp gene which affects I think dopamine and the way people process that and how um, how stressed they might feel uh, by certain events. And some people, for example, I find where they're more of this sort of warrior type, and by worry, I mean with an A, right? So they're a little bit more maybe gung-ho about things. They can take on a lot more strain, but those people, those individuals, and I, I'm within that category, you almost do need a deadline and a pressure to get things yeah. done. So there's always a da- an upside and a downside, right? Um, yeah, when we look at exactly. this. But very interesting what you are saying about mood there, because that isn't something that I'd, automatically seen as as a factor if you like for resiliency but just drawing on my own experience with depression that actually makes so much sense because once I experienced that it was it it then sort of filters into everything in your life doesn't it it does it does because you know depression is is a final common end point as you know if you've suffered from it and one person's depression I treat a lot of depression in the clinic and one person's depression is not the same as the next person's depression sometimes you can have more of an inflammatory depression you can have depression from chronic pain you can have depression from burnout um and what happens when when it gets down the line is the brain goes into withdraw and protect mode because that's what it's trying to do. It's trying to do less. It's trying to say, you know what? It's not safe out there. I'm going to come back and do less and retreat and withdraw to protect the brain because when we were cavemen, that was the best thing to do. So you didn't get eaten because if you were feeling depressed and you were wandering outside very slowly and you weren't paying attention to your environment, you might get eaten. So this is still what our brain does. Um, so it's, I think it's such an overlooked part of resilience. That's so, that's so important what you're saying there as well, because I certainly found that I just wanted to hide away. Yeah. And that actually then compounds the problem because you become very, very isolated in that situation. Yeah, um, which absolutely. Which I think many people experience. It, but it, it was that natural feeling of, I just want to retreat. I need to kind of defend. But then I think what I was unprepared for was just actually how much it affects the immune system once you yeah. are depressed. Yes. Yeah. The, the neuroimmune access is 
so um, linked to with depression to our immune function, um, because what happens is even we can get changes in the microbiome. And then sometimes the microbiome changes what um, starts the depression. I have patients who uh, get an infection, for example, like a vector borne illness, like Lyme disease or some other kind of infection. And that kind of starts the process probably in the gut first. And then something kind of tips over the brain. Maybe it was a stressor at work. Maybe it was losing their job. So it's for every person, it's quite different. But that interplay between the immune system and the mood balancing system is, is very real. And it's, it's very, um, very under-recognized in conventional medicine, pretty much unrecognized. Mm, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I remember being told about it when I was uh, having treatment at the Priory that, you know, but it was yeah. more along the lines of, you need medication because this could affect your immune system. There wasn't yeah, anything yeah. done in and around the immune system to sort of boost it, if you like. Um, okay. It's very interesting because everyone's got kind of really into CBD and things, but you use medicinal cannabis uh, that you prescribe. Uh, this is not an area that I must say that I'm very familiar with, which I love when someone comes on the on the show. And I don't have much knowledge because it means that I can learn a lot. And I know that the the listeners will be really keen to learn. Can you first describe the endocannabinoid system, how this works, a kind of brief overview on what we need to know? Because I know it affects mood, it affects pain, affects things like that, but I don't know a whole lot more about it. Yes, of course. So the endocannabinoid system is a very long word for saying that we have as human beings, a system in our brains and our bodies naturally that um, can use uh, plant chemicals from the cannabis plant, but we actually make our own version of these cannabinoids, these, these chemicals to help the brain and body balance itself. So this endocannabinoid system is actually the most important overall overarching brain and body balancing system. It deals with everything from um, our mood balance, as we've mentioned, to sleep, to our eating behaviors, our appetite, to our response to trauma and pain, which is very important if you have chronic pain or if you've experienced PTSD, for example. Um, it also, it contacts our immune system and it regulates things like inflammation, immune responses. Um, it's involved, the this system becomes dysregulated in a variety. Actually, most chronic diseases have some dysregulation we know now in the endocannabinoid system. Even in our womb, we have uh, receptors for cannabinoids in our womb. So the endocannabinoid system is involved in our reproductive health as well, um, and even in our bone marrow. So it, it's it's a it's a far-reaching uh, global system um, of of health and balance, uh, homeostasis, really. And we we actually didn't learn about this in medical school when I went to medical school um, less than twenty years ago. We were not learning about this and. Actually, still now, many medical schools don't teach it. So we're 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 finally catching up um, to the fact we're waking up to this whole system we've been missing uh, treatment for in medicine, um, and that's why plant cannabinoids from the cannabis plant seem to work so well for a variety of these symptom clusters that are not well treated by a pill for every ill approach. Super interesting. I mean, when you talk there about the womb, so could the mother's uh, endocannabinoid system and how that's interacting affect the growing fetus, for example, and, and what that child is then going to go on to experience? It's, it's very possible. We are really at the beginning of our understanding of what happens with the, um, the you know, the, the, the prenatal kind of development, um, the pregnancy um, 
phase in, in the endocannabinoid system and how that might affect um, the, the fetus. Um, for that reason, of course, we don't tend to prescribe cannabis-based medicines in pregnancy because that system is so involved with the developing fetus. Um, there's actually no major research saying that there's a, there, it, causing, it causes mal malformations or anything like that, but there's some conflicting evidence um, based on population level data that uh, women who use a lot of cannabis recreationally, for example, in their pregnancy, which is of course quite different than medical cannabis, but still the same compounds, um, that their babies might be at higher risk for being low birth weight, for example, and then there's a few studies, again, it's conflicting, the evidence is conflicting whether this is the case, but there's some studies that do point to a potential um, subtle uh, neurocognitive changes in the children when they're a little bit older. So potentially changes in their behavior, that sort of thing, um, from mothers who were exposed to really high THC recreational cannabis, lots of it when they were pregnant. Um, there's been other studies that show that there is no correlation between those, those behavioral changes, but because it's an area of huge unknowns, we, we tend to avoid it in pregnancy. Stay away from it. And with the low kind of birth weight, is that after discounting for the fact, for example, that often cannabis recreationally is taken with tobacco smoking, and we know that smoking reduces birth weight? Um, is it kind of independent yeah. of that? Well, they, they have ways of, you know, getting rid of these confounding factors as much as possible, but they're all statistical ways of doing that. So they're not perfect. So it's, we don't know for sure is the answer. Um, and then there's the other factor with, even if it was just cannabis that they were smoking, is it the smoking that is the issue for the low birth weight? Because we know smoking anything, burning anything in the lungs is bad. Um, and that might be the cause of the low birth weight. So there's a lot of unknown still, of course, because we can't test these things in pregnant women. We have to rely on you know, population level observational uh, data sets, which um, you know, have their, their drawbacks. And so before we go into uh, medicinal cannabis, because a lot of people are taking CBD. And yeah. when I was kind of doing some research into that some time ago and sort of experimenting with it, you can get kind of hemp uh, extract and then you can yeah. also get full spectrum and then you can get broad spectrum, I believe. And so I think and I think broad spectrum is kind of the middle ground, is it? And full spectrum or, or it may be the other way around. But one of them contains um all of the elements, if you like, of the plant, but with very, very minimal THC, which I think when I tried it actually was shipped to me from an American company, because I'm not sure it's even available here in the UK. Uh, and I remember it actually being quite powerful. I didn't mean like the herbiness of it <laughs> under the tongue, but it was uh, pretty powerful in terms of sleep. With CBD, can you just explain the, the subtle differences for people and what's available and also the kind of levels? It's, it's quite an expensive thing, I think, as well to start taking if you get good quality. Exactly. Yeah, the good quality stuff is expensive. And unfortunately, there's a lot of bad quality that's very well branded and marketed. That's the same price as the good quality, good stuff. So it's hard to tell. Um, but I'll try to kind of break it down for people who might be looking for something that they can buy over the counter. So all the over the counter CBD you can get without a prescription is from hemp. Hemp is the uh, subtype of the cannabis plant that has very, very little THC to begin with. So that's the legal thing that they can sell, you know, on the high street shops sort of thing. So uh, using a full spectrum extract, you're exactly correct. It is considered the best because it has not, it doesn't really have much THC, but it has trace THC and it has all the, um, some of the other minor cannabinoid, the other plant chemicals that work together in what's known as herbal synergy or in cannabis world, it's called the entourage effect. Um, and 
why this is important is because the endocannabinoid system doesn't just respond to just CBD or just THC. It's all the other plant chemicals are also um, biologically active. A lot of them, probably over a hundred that we know about so far. So that contributes to the medicinal effect, much like I'm also trained in botanical medicine as well as, you know, being a conventional medical doctor, much like when I use botanical medicines alongside drugs, a lot of times I'm looking for the, the synergy effect with some of these botanicals and cannabis is kind of the same way, but in the same, in, in, in its own plant, in the same plant. So full spectrum CBD is harder to come by in the UK because of a regulation called novel foods. It's a long story. Basically it's harder to get now. Um, broad spectrum supposedly does have some of those other minor plant chemicals, but no THC at all. However, most broad spectrum extracts, if you look at the breakdown on the certificate of analysis, they're basically almost CBD isolate, which is just pure CBD. Um, pure CBD, CBD isolate can work okay for some people, but for a lot of people, they don't really notice much change or they have to have such high doses that they might get a side effect or something like this. So generally um, for something you can buy on your own for kind of milder issues, like milder stress issues, um, a, a full spectrum, good quality product that comes with what's called a COA from a good reputable company is the way to go. That's the way to go. Okay. Interesting. Um, and in terms of the best time of day to take it, is that in the evening? Um, it really depends with CBD. So in my medical clinic, for example, we treat a lot of insomnia. And uh, as some people may know, you know, the integrated medicine view of insomnia is actually, it's a 24 hour um, disorder of arousal in the nervous system. It's not just when we go to sleep, that's just when we notice it because we're trying to sleep. So from that perspective, even hemp CBD, if you take it throughout the day and it lowers the cortisol levels, lowers the stress hormone levels throughout the day, that can help the natural sleep hormones at nighttime kind of come back online at the right time and avoid avoid the um, the melatonin blunting, the sleep hormone blunting, and potentially reduce the the, the cortisol flipping that you get in chronic stress overload. Um, there's not a lot of research on it, but clinically that's what we find. But some people who have really bad insomnia, they they try to take hemp CBD before they go to bed. It doesn't work as a sleep aid directly. Sometimes it can actually make people more wakeful. It can actually wake up some of the parts of the brain um, and, and that are involved with keeping us awake and alert. So for treatment-resistant insomnia in the clinic, we use actually THC, an oil of THC in a full-spectrum uh, plant um, oil, like a prescription oil with THC in a very, very tiny dose, like starting at one or two milligrams before bedtime. Just to give people a reference, if you smoked half of a joint, you might get seven. If you smoked a whole joint, you might get um, 100 to 150 milligrams of THC in about five minutes. I'm talking about one to two milligrams of THC over a long acting period of a few hours. So it's very, very different than- It's tiny, it's a microdosing. It's a so micro, you're not going to get really the munchies on that. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're not going to get the munchies. And then slowly titrating up until you get a nice sleep effect without feeling hungover or any side effects. What have you found that you need to go? I mean, it obviously varies with patient to patient, right? But when you're yeah. when you're titrating up and you're going from that very low dose, yeah. uh, comparing that to what you would have, for example, someone smoking a joint, how how high do you need to go to actually get those effects? Usually not very high, um, but everyone, as you said, is different because everyone's endocannabinoid system is different. 
And especially when the endocannabinoid system becomes dysregulated, like it does in mood disorders, for example, chronic fatigue syndrome, um, any, any chronic pain condition, fibromyalgia, really have a lot of endocannabinoid dysfunction, fibromyalgia. Um, then it's all bets are off. You just have to really tailor it to the person. And sometimes it's not just the amount of THC and CBD, it's the cultivar that you're using. So you switch to a different strain and the effects change. So it's so individualized. Um, and of course I use cannabis alongside other botanicals, sometimes along, that's alongside other medications, of course. Um, and what we find is that the, the optimal dose for each person can be quite different. So I can have one person taking two or three milligrams long-term of THC, and that can be working great. I could have another person taking 20 milligrams of THC at nighttime. And for them, that doesn't make them feel groggy or funny in the morning at all. And that's how much they need. That's probably someone who's um, we've weaned down off of opioids for really terrible chronic pain. They might have restless leg syndrome. They might have a neurological condition. So the, the person at the lower end might just be suffering from kind of mild to moderate uh, anxiety and insomnia and depression. Interesting. And do you see any kind of dependency with, um, with cannabis? So with medical cannabis, I've never seen it become a problem. And I've treated thousands of patients over many years. And I, I teach, I do a lot of teaching with other doctors who now prescribe. Um, that being said, if you smoked huge amounts of high THC, black market cannabis and joint every single day for years and years and years, there's um, some literature that says there's probably around a eight to 9% chance of, of having a cannabis use disorder um, kind of coming from that. That being said, alcohol is about 20% if you did the same thing. So um, it's it's lower risk than a lot of other substances. In the medical um, context, the risk is probably below 1%. It's very, very small. But you know, when it's not used properly, I mean, we have to remember, this is like I tell my patients and doctors I teach, this is a power plant. The power plants, we have to treat them with respect. THC, this is in this, this power plant kind of um, arena. Um, and when they're misused, just like anything else, they can become um, a, a, a hurting the resilience system rather than helping it. And is it, what about um, in terms of young people, like some of the, um, when, when you look at countries that have looked, for example, at legalizing it, one of those issues is around how it might affect a developing brain. What yeah, are your thoughts yeah. around that? So I, this is another um, point I teach on quite a bit. So there's a few things there. So there is quite robust evidence that First of all, legalizing uh, cannabis for adult use does not increase the amount of teens and young people using cannabis. It seems that uh, that youth will use substances recreationally, whether or not it's legalized. It doesn't seem um, from the very actually good level robust data we have that that makes that worse, that makes uh, abu abuse of cannabis by young people worse. Um, however, in in some cases where children are suffering from illnesses that have not responded well to other medications, like in epilepsy, um, children who are autistic, who are on terrible amounts of medications like antipsychotics and, um, you know, um, kind of basically neuro, neurodepressants to kind of manage their behavioral symptoms of autism. Um, actually, medical cannabis can be used very effectively in those children to improve their quality of life and improve their symptom control. Um, so it can be a medicine in children, but we're not talking about normal children. We're talking about children who have medical problems. Um, obviously in, in children who are completely healthy and normal, um, I would say definitely avoid cannabis because there's some research that under the age of 25, very high THC smoked recreational use cannabis 
cannabis is not very good for the developing brain because the frontal lobe is still developing until the age of 25. So especially under 18s who are healthy and normal, um, we would want them to avoid recreational use as well of cannabis. Um, but that's quite different than treating some of the pediatric cases we see with medical cannabis because there's a high clinical need and it's actually less risky than the other drugs they're already taking mm, for their brain. Because they're taking drugs anyway, so yeah. Correct. That makes sense. And you yeah. mentioned as well, when we're looking at like pain and resiliency uh, earlier there around mitochondria mm. and the health of mitochondria, which we know are these kind of energy powerhouses, um, are, is med medicinal cannabis affecting the mitochondria? Probably the answer is yes. We have some preclinical evidence. We don't have robust, huge data sets yet in humans, but we have some evidence that CBD and THC probably are mitochondrial protective. Um, but again, it's very early days. Clinically, what I found over many years of doing this with many patients, I treat a lot of chronic fatigue spectrum illness um, and more recently long COVID. And I do find that medical cannabis is a very helpful tool for the fatigue. And again, it's, it's really helpful to get people that quick win that they need, that relief from the fatigue, because it's really hard to get someone on a recovery program that's quite complex, looking at you know their gut microbiome, revamping their diet, doing complicated supplements, doing functional medicine testing, all that stuff. If they're so fatigued, they can't even focus on brushing their teeth. It's just too much. So what we do with medical cannabis is we get them uh, feeling better. We can help relieve their fatigue with the medical cannabis, usually quite effectively. And then we start the longer term process of recovery um, and helping the mitochondria, you know, regain as normal function as possible. Um, of course, some people's mitochondria just don't work as well as other people's. It might always be the case, but we can get people to a point where they feel normal again most of the time. How interesting. So it's kind of like a first step, effectively. It's the one thing, I guess. I always like to isolate the yeah. one thing that then has that domino effect of making everything else easy. That's right. That's exactly it. It's I like to call it, it's I, relief, recovery, and resilience. And relief, we use a lot of these novel medicines, and cannabis is really number one. Um, yeah. And that. Um, you mentioned as well that uh, using other botanicals. What what other kind of things are you utilizing? So I use a lot of different botanicals for different things for burnout and uh, chronic stress. Um, you know, there's there's the adaptogen herbs that I really like, and every person will have a different mix of adaptogens um, depending on the makeup of that person. So, for example, if someone is tired but wired, you don't want to give them Panax ginseng because it's going to ramp them up more. Um, you want to use more of a kind of a, a calming adaptogen herb or a neutral adaptogen, something like Eleutherococcus combined with maybe some ashwagandha if, if for women's health, for example. Um, so I do really tailor to the patient, but there's some there's some kind of general buckets. There is the adaptogen herbs that basically help our body adapt to chronic stress. So I use a lot of those. So those are things like Siberian ginseng, ashwagandha, um, um, Ooh, astragalus. Um, there's what else do we have? We have Isn't American like ginseng and rhodiola, shisandra, rhodiola, all of those. And then we have the medicinal mushrooms, and there we have reishis and our cordyceps. Love cordyceps. mushrooms, <laughs> love them, right? And they love them. And they just make you feel amazing. They, they just create so that good. really like zen balance. Yeah. Where you've got that. Yeah. I feel like I. I feel like if I could ever become a Buddhist monk, it would be through mushrooms. 
<laughs> yeah, so we use, I use a lot of mushrooms as well. Um, and I'm quite picky about what companies I use. I'm not affiliated with any companies, but with the mushrooms specifically, it is very, very important what the source is because it's the fruiting bodies and the, the you know, the, the fruit to oligosaccharides and the, 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 the composition of the, the powder or the extract that's so important. And then um, in patients who really need high dose therapy, there's even liquid extracts we can get for mushrooms now that are really, really, really high strength. So yeah, I use a lot of that stuff. And then I use a lot of nutraceuticals as well. So PQQ, a lot of kind of brain hacker ingredients that people would probably recognize. Um, and sometimes that's in combination uh, tablets from you know supplement companies who make really good stuff. And then sometimes it's, it's me piecing it together depending on the person. Amazing. I want to go into the brain hacking in just a moment, but I just had something I wanted to touch on there was ashwagandha, because I think people, I think it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because of the way mm -hmm. it can interact with thyroid. And um, I'm just curious what you found, because sometimes like it's, it's difficult when you're kind of wading through the research to see in some mm -hmm. cases, obviously for people who have a hyperactive thyroid, so something like Graves, it seems contraindicated, but then in people who have an underactive thyroid, it seems in some people it can actually be helpful, but may interact with thyroid medication. Um, in other people, it may not be. And I'm curious what you found or whether this is just very individual again. It's really individual. There's no good studies uh, giving us a clear answer. So we have to go on basically um, clinical uh, wisdom, really, in, in what I found with ashwagandha. I've been using it for well over a decade. And sometimes I still get an occasional surprise with ashwagandha. Usually I'm pretty good at knowing who's going to respond well and who's not. Um, but I had a I had a surprise about six months ago. I thought I had chosen this woman. I thought she was going to be perfect for ashwagandha and it made her really fatigued. Um, so it's also just listening to your patients sometimes. Like as soon as I hear that, I'm like, okay, this is not the right botanical for you. Let's change it. And then we found something that really did work well. And for her, it was less around the botanicals. For her, it was more about um, focusing on the microbiome and the mitochondrial support. So it's, it's just, I think it's just a lot of it is, is clinical wisdom. And then of course, just keeping training and studying all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. And um, on the brain hacking, right, let's go there. Cause I think this is going to be interesting for, for everyone listening. It's a real passion mm -hmm. of mine because I'm always trying to, you know, upgrade my brain. Uh, I can I think as someone who's really passionate about with what they do, uh, I always want to kind of give my fullest. And that obviously means, I mean, we were talking there in the beginning of this interview, we were talking about having a degree of stress because it helps enhance resiliency and it mm -hmm. helps you make progress, right? But you don't want to push yourself too hard. Uh, the idea behind all these botanicals and, and, and everything you're using and cannabis is presumably not to say, oh, that's fine. Well, you can just go, instead of going a hundred miles an hour, now you can go a thousand miles an hour and not burn Correct. We know that Correct. just isn't possible. Yeah. Um, so for somebody who is, you know, wanting to perform at their best and really have good levels of concentration, but coupled with that kind of creativity and flow, uh, which I think is really important to have that balance. Yeah. Uh, what have you found? How can we how can we hack our brains? For high performance? Well, I think the simplest way is to decrease the bad stress. So Something as simple as doing a simple mind-body practice. I teach my patients who have never meditated before the breath one. So it's just inhale through the nose and longer exhale through the mouth with a ha seed sound. It's so simple. But if you just do that five times, a, sorry, five minutes, a few times a day, or even one minute, I like to call them resilience reset. So I say to people, do a resilience reset for one minute 
even three times a day, and then once before you go to bed. So that's a total of four minutes a day. That can help kind of with the stress buildup that we get that turns off our hippocampus, our, our learning centers. Um, it makes our brain shut down. It makes us less creative. So that's a really easy one. Then you get into brain hacking with supplements. There's lots you can do there. We've talked touched on that a little bit. And then there's there's other things like um, neurofeedback, for example. So um, I still use neurofeedback myself. Um, there's something called SMR neurofeedback, which is very it's a very simple neurofeedback protocol. It's very it's very old. It just uses two electrodes on the head, and it basically stabilizes the brain rhythm. That is really good for kind of calm focus, um, and it also helps us become more resilient to stress. Um, I've used so I've used a lot of neurofeedback. I, I also find that doing something creative, I, I dance, that's my creative outlet. And I find that um, the way that I feel after I dance, after I go to a dance class, I do contemporary dance, is similar to the way I feel after I've done a neurofeedback session. So it's finding what is the best way for you to tap into your flow state, really, because SMR is actually similar to the flow state. So there's there's high tech ways of hacking it. There's low tech ways of hacking it. Um, you just have to find what works for you, really. And um, SMR is a is a brainwave frequency. Yeah, it's a, it's called the sensory it's motor rhythm. It's quite um, it's quite fast, isn't it? it? It's quite it's actually slow beta. It's low beta, basically. Yeah, so it's in between the alpha state and the beta state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think because yeah. I've uh, I was speaking to Dr. Patrick Porter about that when I'm playing with my brain tap. There's some sessions on there to for SMR training. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so yeah. for doing that, if, if you regularly do SMR training, so it's kind of like it's crossing that line, right, where beta for, for people listening, a beta brainwave state is kind of like we are now, right, where you're concentrating, you're interacting. But if you go too fast into beta, it can be very high stress. Anxious. Yeah. Alpha. Yeah. And alpha is kind of dropping more into that creativity. So here we're sort of straddling. Are we Correct. sort of almost between the two? So is that going to yeah. achieve that focus with creativity that we're looking for? Um creativity possibly but it's more the kind of calm focus it's kind of more the calm focus state so the the ability to tolerate more stress that sort of thing getting down into the alpha the low alpha frequency you might get a bit more creative but then you're going to be quite kind of um almost kind of in an altered state of awareness at that point um but but it's not just getting into the state what what we find the most flexible brains do the most most resilient brains they're actually good at not getting stuck so you can get stuck in alpha. People who have depression can be idling too much. People who have anxiety can have too much high beta. So it's actually the ability to, to um, flexibly change states is so important. Uh, personally, for me, that's, I think, why dance is so good because it's, it's a brain workout, but also it's a body workout. And then once you're doing the choreography and you're in your flow, you're, you're switching brain states quite a bit. So anything, any activity like that, that people find that they enjoy uh, can potentially do a similar thing. Um, and, and neurofeedback is great, but of course it's very expensive and it's very fiddly. So these other ways that we can kind of access those, um, those brain skills are really uh, valuable. Yeah, interesting. And do you, what about, do you, do you use other forms of breath work or things like cold exposure, for example, in relation to yeah. this and Wim Hof style breathing. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, so I, I do. I do all of that stuff depending on the person. Um, it depends on how much they can handle. Some of my patients 
when they've I had a patient who, who came to me, they were already doing Wim Hof, but for them, they were too depleted. That was Wim Hof is what I call a building practice. It's a wonderful building practice. But if you're in the depleted state, it's not the time to do those building practices. So you really have to match the practice, not just to the person, but to the phase of their journey that they're in, I find. So, um, for example, cold therapy can be really, really useful for people with um, forms of chronic pain that involve what we call central sensitization, which is the nervous system has an out of um, out of proportion response to the biological pain signal. Um, but too much too soon can basically traumatize the nervous system and make them more people more fatigued. So, you know, before we do ice baths, we do cold bath, or you get a little bit of your body into the bath, or you do a cold shower. So the hot and cold can be really beneficial um, if it's tailored to the person I find. So you'd build up slowly and start doing like effectively a cold yeah. bath or a warm one, then reducing to cold, then but it, not in the same same session. Presumably, no, not the in the time, same session. Just exposing themselves to either increasing amounts of cold or increasing length of cold duration. Correct. Correct. And it's the same with sauna. So I, I recommend sauna a lot of times as well. But again, it's it too much stress. Any type of too much stress can create DNA damage and free radical damage. So it's whether it's cold stress, heat stress. So again, it's finding the right level of that stress. Um, and it's also what people like. A lot of people like doing a, a small sauna session. It's harder. It's the hard sell is always the cold water, but um, it's an easier sell sometimes when I have people with treatment resistant chronic pain and they tried a lot of other things in cold water therapy is free. So, you know, before we go to something like ketamine therapy, which is where we do an IV infusion of ketamine, which is a medication um, used to induce an altered state of consciousness in this case, um, and as a pain reliever, um, it's it's a novel medicine, another novel medicine we use now, but and it's very effective, but it's very expensive. We can do something like cold water therapy, add the medical cannabis, and a lot of times that gets them to where they need to be. So when you're using ketamine there, you were talking about it uh, inducing that altered state. For, for what purpose? Are you then going to engage in some kind of therapy session with the individual? Yes, not myself personally, but we have trained psychotherapists. Um, so so ketamine psychotherapy is, is a treatment we can do now in the UK for treatment-resistant chronic pain and for treatment-resistant depression. So there's a biological component. So even if you did, um, so the, the most, the famous and experienced ketamine um, doctor he's a professor at oxford and um he actually in his clinic they don't use any therapy they just use the biological method of of, of treating uh patients with depression with ketamine and it's actually quite effective but it's more effective when you add the psychotherapy component because what happens when you're in the session and you have this altered state experience where you have a dissociation at these higher doses is then you you can have some insights sometimes and those integrating those insights and kind of unpacking the boxes in the brain, so to speak, and um, looking in them and kind of integrating those boxes um, is very beneficial. So um, ideally, it's it's both together. So it's sort of helping you create that observer effect. Is that what you're saying? That's right. That's yeah. right. Interesting. Yeah. Which is actually quite a hard. I remember when I was going through my own journey with psychotherapy, actually yeah. developing that sense of being the observer really took practice. It, it takes. Yeah, time. exactly. So this sort of accelerates it. It accelerates it, and there's a biological antidepressant effect and anti-pain effect right away as well. Yeah. But how long so just this, while you're having that infusion, or does it last after the event? It lasts, but every person's different. So for chronic pain, for example, 
you might have to top people up every two or three weeks or maybe every two or three months, the same with depression. Um, some people can get months and months out of, after they've had a few sessions and they're stable, they can get longer and longer periods of, of time of remission of their depression symptoms, but sometimes you need to top up. Um, so it's not a permanent cure, but as you said, it's more quick antidepressant effect. It lasts for a while. And then alongside of the observer effect and learning to live alongside the depression rather than having it consume your whole person. Mm. It's really interesting because as soon as you teach stuff like that, right, you can't unlearn things. That's why I think it's so useful because now you have that in your toolbox. Um, Are there any side effects to it? Um, When you choose the patients well, they're actually very well tolerated. But of course, you have to make patients um, comfortable. They have to be comfortable with um, some, you know, that altered state experience. So it's done in a, obviously in a medical setting, which is very safe and very reassuring for, for the patient. Um, so when it's done that way, there's, there's very little side effects. Um, but, you know, obviously with any medication, you have to choose the patients carefully. And of course, under only experts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Make yeah. sure you, you find the right person like yourself. Exactly. What, what about, um, do you use any kind of psychedelics at all? So, so ketamine is considered a form of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. It's the only one that we can legally use now in the UK. Um, But of course, there are many others. So many of my patients have have gone through psychedelic assisted psychotherapy in various forms um, outside of the UK where it is legal and it it can be incredibly transformative for people. So um, and that's one of my areas of research interest is psilocybin which is a magic mushroom extract and also things like ayahuasca, which is um, the main, one of the main ingredients is DMT um, from the vine in the Amazon. And there's also some, some others as well. So there's a lot of ongoing studies here in the UK using psilocybin and DMT derived plants for things like PTSD, uh, eating disorders, anxiety, um, depression with um, some promising initial results. But of and course, it is what you can produce naturally through breath work if you're if you're doing it correctly. Yeah, there's no big studies on that, but there's you know there's there's some you know potential there. We think for producing natural DMT, and it is something that we we produce naturally as well. You're exactly right. Um, so it's it's you know using these substances in a safe way, in a really responsible way, is also really important because. I've also, you know, I'm involved in the healing community for many years. So of course, I've also seen it go wrong um, where people you know, use, like, they go on a psychedelic journey and it just has gone wrong for multiple reasons. And sometimes it can make people more traumatized. So it has to be done in such a safely held container. Um, and of course, here in the UK, it has to be um, just ketamine. We can't use those other substances yet, but some of my patients have gone to the Netherlands to do personal growth retreats with psilocybin um, or gone to the Caribbean where they can do those retreats now or Costa Rica where you can do ayahuasca retreats or the Amazon. So uh, I do have a lot of experience working with people and helping them with the integration um, of those experiences. And they can be really life-changing. Um, but of course, you've got to do the integration work. Otherwise, it's just a peak experience and it's just fleeting. Um, and holding the the set and the setting in a really safe container is just really important and also that reintegration from what I've heard I I I haven't been out to the Netherlands and done it myself I've thought about it but I know that people I've spoken to have said actually it's almost then very difficult coming into what we perceive as sort of the rat race here that's Um, right it it can be quite difficult making that transition back 
it can be really difficult making the transition back. You're absolutely right. And the integration is is what's really lacking um, in a lot of these kind of, you know, settings. Um, some people do it really well. There's some guys in the Netherlands do it really, really well. But, you know, there's other settings, especially a lot of the underground settings where um, it's a huge group of people who are doing it in an underground setting. Um, there's not a lot of oversight. They're not medically trained. They're not psychotherapists. Um, they're trying to do the best they can, but they might be doing huge amounts of, of people in a group and then just sending them away at the end of a weekend, um, you know, without that integration work. And it can, it can really leave people in a, a really tricky spot at the best, at the worst, it can leave people quite um, distressed. Um, so I think it, it is really, really important. Um, and you can also have things, unexpected things happen when you, when you, you know, have these altered state experiences that you don't expect or things that feel very real, but they're, they're not real. And it's having someone who is trained, like a psychotherapist, who's trained to kind of help you unpack all of that. Um, not just once, but at, on a, at a period of time going forward at intervals. That's so um, healing. To help you. And with the, yeah. like ayahuasca, for example, I don't know whether it's because I've just seen things like this on social media where it just, and is it, is it Cambo uh, that a lot of people are using where you put this kind of poison into the arm and there's so much purging yeah. people just, like yeah. you know basically throwing up and it, it doesn't actually look particularly pleasant is that normal is that <laughs> in these extreme doses no it's it's ayahuasca also so cambo is very different cambo is actually more of an opioid like compound it's not a psychedelic um we know a lot less about combo actually it has a lot less research but um ayahuasca it, you know the dmt kind of analog from well it has lots of other plant compounds as well anyone who's an ayahuasca aficionado is going to be like it's not just dmt yes it's <laughs> true it's not um but when it you know the compound that we study uh, primarily is, is dmt from it um but but basically um when we when you use a substance like ayahuasca it's not going to be a recreational experience so these are not drugs that are abused because with ayahuasca for example yeah there's a lot of throwing up and vomiting that most people experience when they do an ayahuasca ceremony um it's it, it, the traditional use in a lot of the traditional um uh, tribes who have used this in the amazon basin for example and throughout central america they consider that part of the 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 journey that someone goes on when they when they take one of these sacred plants um but it's certainly not a um a pleasant experience for a lot of people it can be very transformative but i i haven't met many people who said oh yeah I, you know i had a great time going to the ayahuasca retreat it, yeah. it was a big it's a big party um it's not that kind of of plant medicine mm. And what about when it's being used in a medical setting or are you microdosing, are you still expecting to have that? Like, is that a necessary part of it? And what's causing that, that vomiting effectively? Um, is it the purging of memories and things and the experiences or is it actually just, it is physiologically making you feel nauseous? Well, when the, so DMT is being studied in different analog forms, not ayahuasca brew, because you can't really make ayahuasca brew into a medicine that's standardized because there's so many things in there and every tribe makes their ayahuasca brew differently actually depending on the native vines and plants that are in that um, local ecosystem so when you're studying dmt you can give people dmt through intravenous for example just pure dmt um, no usually you don't get the vomiting just from pure dmt but it's a very um, profound almost instant altered state experience and people have very altered states uh, with DMT in a medical setting. Uh, there's a great book by a University of Arizona professor called Rick Strauss, and 
Um, it's called the spirit DMT, the spirit molecule. And it's basically chronicling his research with DMT. And it's, if anyone's interested, it's fascinating read. And, um, you know, people can have uh, on DMT, they've, they've had all kinds of interesting experiences of thinking that they've contacted other entities. And there's all, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a scientist, so I'm just, we don't know exactly what these things mean, but um, people can have very altered state experiences and um, very similar kind of experiences on the same substance. substance. Um, it's the same with um, masculine derived compounds, like in traditional use cultures, for example, you see a lot of the same types of visions coming from peyote as you can get sometimes with um, San Pedro, even though it's completely different culture, because masculine is the uh, one of the main psychoactive ingredients in both of those cacti. Interesting. Yeah. And on a more kind of no, not actually say normal, <laughs> it's not this is normal, but let's say on a more legal note, shall we say? Yeah. What are your thoughts around methylene blue for enhancing uh, energy and concentration and, and mitochondrial health? I've never used it and I can't say I know much about it, but I, I'm not aware that there's any good big research on it. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, before you go, one of the last things we talked there about your sort of symptom relief, your three R's, your relief, your recovery. And then the last one is, um, is the resiliency. Part of this is an integration of practices, but you mentioned offline that gut health is also really an important yeah. part of this. What yeah. have you found there? It is interesting, like with mood disorders, with anxiety, we're just learning more and more about the microbiome and how it's affecting things. Yeah. So I would say most of my patients who we go on to do functional medicine testing for the gut, that's one of my, I only do functional medicine testing when I think it's going to change what I do for someone because it gets really expensive. Mm -hmm. But um, I do comprehensive stool analyses panels a lot in my practice. And what we find, some of the most common things we find are leaky gut. So leaky gut is the scientific term is intestinal permeability. And when you have altered intestinal permeability, you have proteins getting in where they shouldn't. You have undigested proteins. If there's not enough stomach acid, for example, not even getting broken down. And then the whole protein is going through. You can have bugs, you can have toxins going through. Um, and that creates a lot of disturbance in the immune system. So a lot of times people suffering from a mood disorder or obviously chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, long COVID, you see a lot of disturbance in the, in the, um, the gut axis. And when you start to improve and reduce the intestinal permeability, reduce the leaky gut, um, get rid of the, the baddies, as I say, um, the small bowel intestinal overgrowth, there's a lot of SIBO that we find, um, a lot of kind of um, dysregulated microbiome, um, lack of short chain fatty acids, then people start to improve, their symptoms start to improve. Um, so working with the gut is pretty central to a lot of these chronic conditions, in my opinion. Really important, right? I'm sure learning yeah. more. Do you have any, uh, before we link to where people can find you, I know you have a new book coming out. Do you have a particular morning routine that you use to, to keep your brain and your health, you keep yourself really, really healthy, that you use for focus or concentration, any particular nootropics, anything exciting that you want to share? Well, I have to say, I had a more impressive one before I had a two-year-old. Um, so now my morning routine. <laughs> yeah, that's when the morning routine goes out the window, right? When exactly. That's, that's it. That's when you have a baby. So now as a full-time working person with a two-year-old, my morning routine is a lot different. Um, so now I've just basically gone back to the bare basics. So I have a really healthy breakfast. I have um, 
wheat-free whole grain sourdough bread. I have organic coffee. Um, I have a bunch of flax and that's like a good morning breakfast to me and usually some, some yogurt and fruit. So good morning breakfast. That's key. I usually take a few minutes when I'm waking up to do a short mind body practice before I kind of get out of bed, if my toddler allows me to. Um, and then a lot of my morning routine, and that's, it's just basically that now. And then just getting up with my toddler and to be honest, just mindfully enjoying him before I get him off to preschool. That's what I have found is, is a joy for me at this point in my life. So I've just decided, you know what? I don't have time for a big morning routine anymore. I'm just going to embrace these beautiful little moments with my little guy. Um, And for me, that actually brings me a lot of joy in the morning. So by lunchtime, if I'm feeling frazzled, I find that I do, um, because after he's off, I do take a few minutes and go for a walk in the woods and do a breathing exercise for about five, 10 minutes. And that is basically shifted with <laughs> some of my morning routine to my lunch routine. <laughs> As it does. But it, you know what? It's what you're saying now, I just love because it's so important to enjoy the magic, right? It's just so yeah. beautiful. And it and it goes so quickly, right? Having had uh, like three of my own and they're growing up now, my youngest is 10 and a half. Like oh, yeah. it's so magical. Why would you try and resist that, right? I'm just such a massive fan of going with the flow, right? And, it, and as you say, it actually gives you yeah. that mindfulness because you can, a toddler, two-year-old is so present. That's the thing. They're so right? present. It's amazing. They teach us. They're just, they do, they do. And that's it. It's just going with the flow. And I've learned, you know, I was so um, upset about my morning routine at first, you know, getting into the routine of being a new mom. And then I just thought, this is, it's never going to be the way that it is. Change is just part of life. So I just have to change what my morning routine, what I think a good morning routine looks like now. <laughs> <laughs> and just adapt (laughs) just adapt yeah amazing oh well when's your book out tell us when's your book where can people find you yes um so the book is out in april the second book my the current book is the cbd bible and the cannabis the cannabis book that is out currently and that could be found pretty much any major bookstore on amazon um the new one is out in april i don't know what date yet but people can find me and the book links to the book and so forth at um, resilience.clinic. There's also a link to the medical practice for people who want to um, get in touch about being a patient or uh, people who are already well and don't need me for that. There's just free resources and resilience tips and stuff like that. Amazing. We'll link to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. I've learned so much. I think it's going to be one I'm going to go back and listen to myself. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's been so nice, Angela. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's show and for your interest in health optimization for high performance. If you're new to my podcast, you may be interested to know that you can get a free health score and report complete with personalized recommendations on how to optimize your sleep, nutrition, fitness, and resilience in the top link in the show notes below. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Links to everything we talked about are also in the show notes. And if you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe for more.